Good afternoon. It is a joy to be here today. Uh, I want to start off just briefly by thanking you all uh, for your prayers and, and support for Aaron and I uh, through this past year uh, as, as we've been working through our, our adoption. Um, God has answered those prayers, uh, and, and I hope you will join me in, in praising him for that. Uh, we, we appreciate so much the, the support system that we have here, the spiritual family that we have. Uh, appreciate you all giving us grace as we figure out our new normal uh, and settle back in <laughs> to uh, the, our work here within the body. The last time that I preached, we were just beginning our Bible reading plan and just kind of gearing up uh, for that, to, to go through that together. Now we have five weeks behind us. Uh, we have a, over a full month under our belts, and now might be a good time to stop and take stock, to get back on track in the Bible reading plan if, if you have fallen behind. And I, I want to really encourage everybody to, to continue in that. Uh, we, we certainly cannot overemphasize the importance of spending personal time reading God's Word. This is the autobiography of God. It is his primary means of revelation to mankind. Certainly we can see the, the handiwork of God, the power of God, as we look at creation around us. Uh, per, perhaps from time to time we can perceive the mysterious nudgings of providence and answer to our prayers or in, in the outworking of situations in our lives. But the singular way that God has revealed his moral will to us and his character to us is within the scriptures in all its completion and perfection. And so I hope as we read through the scriptures this year, we can remember that, that God is the hero of the story. He is the main character on every page. We're, we're going to cover um, some section of Genesis here, some that we have just finished reading this past week, some that we're getting ready to read this coming week. But as we read God's word, he is the main character. All other individuals are, are just uh, supporting actors and actresses on, on the, uh, the outworkings of, of history. And so I, I want us to focus on one of those supporting characters today that we might sometimes overlook, and that is Judah. But I want to encourage us to remember, even as we look at Judah, really we're learning about God. We're learning about God's uh, interaction with mankind. But I hope by looking at Judah's life, we, we can learn some things that can be applicable to ourselves as well. But the passage that we uh, just read here in Genesis 49 is Jacob blessing his children before he departs. And you, remain, you may remember from the story of Jacob and Esau that there were two primary privileges of inheritance, the birthright and the blessing. You may remember Jacob uh, steals the, the birthright from Esau. Uh, really, he barters for it, causing Esau to, to sell it to him for a pot of stew. And later on, he deceives his father in order to receive the blessing. The birthright was a double portion of the inheritance. And in fact, we, we see Joseph receives that double portion as his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in chapter 48, are both given inheritances uh, from Jacob. Uh, he, being the, the first son of uh, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, gets that birthright. But who gets the blessing? 
the, the blessing of carrying on the, the promises of Abraham. Uh, certainly the, the land promise and the nation promise, all these sons are going to kind of share equally. But what about that seed promise? The one that's going to come who is going to be a blessing to all nations. Uh, that seed that's going to come back in Genesis 3 that's going to, to crush the head of Satan. Well, as we read through Genesis 49, we kind of look at each individual and we, he, we begin having them kind of ruled out for one reason or another. Here in Genesis 49, starting in verse 3, we read, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so here, Reuben, being the firstborn, certainly he'll be the one to get the blessing, right? Well, no, he's not going to have preeminence uh, because in Genesis 35 and verse 22, he had committed fornication with his uh, father's concubine, Bilhah. And so that disqualifies him because of this immorality. So we come to the next two, Simeon and Levi. They're second and third in line. Of course, they're going to get the blessing. Well, notice what he says in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You may remember in Genesis 34 that Simeon and Levi were the two instigators in wiping out the Hivites because Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah. They deceived them into uh, be all being circumcised, and when they're still healing from that process, they go in and kill all of them. And so because of that violence and deception, Simeon and Levi are ruled out. He says he's going to scatter them throughout Israel. Remember, Levi does not have a portion of land in Israel later on, but has cities all throughout. Simeon kind of gets swallowed up into Judah. So then we come to Judah. And we'll talk about this more shortly. But when Judah's name comes to mind, we've already ruled out Reuben. We've already ruled out Simeon and Levi. And if you remember reading Genesis 38 this past week, you might think, well, certainly, certainly it's not going to be Judah because of his immorality um, with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But notice what we read about Judah, starting in verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, uh, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Judah, uh, which Carl talked about a while back in our Romans class, is a name that means praise, says he's going to be praised by his brothers. And in fact, he says, your father's sons shall bow down before you. The very thing that Joseph had foreseen in his dream was going to happen to him. Here, Jacob says, is also going to happen for Judah. 
His brothers are going to bow down before him. He's described with the strength of a lion later on in the book of Revelation. Jesus is going to be talked about as the lion of the tribe of Judah, this picture of strength. In verse 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. He is going to have the kingship. In fact, an everlasting kingship. And to him is going to be the obedience of the peoples. Not only his brothers, but the peoples. The nations are going to serve him. And we have this picture of prosperity in verse 11 and 12. Vines and, and grapes and wine were so prevalent, so to speak, that you, you'd use a vine as a rope to tie up your donkey. You, you'd use uh, the, the wine as, you know, wash water um, for your clothes. That's how prosperous they're going to be. Uh, Judah is going to be here. So why is it? Why is it that once we get to Judah, he is the one who the Messiah is going to come through? You know, when we talk about the book of Genesis, I've told the young people many times that there are four major events and four major people in Genesis. We have creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and then our four major people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. At least that's normally what we think. But I think what we'll see is as we study through Genesis, Judah has a very significant role, not just Joseph. In fact, intertwined with Joseph's story, we're going to see the story of Judah. And I think we're going to slowly become, begin to understand why Judah is ultimately the son of promise, the one who the Messiah is going to come through. But first we have to realize Judah is no better than his brothers, especially as we look at his past. Uh, he had every reason to be disqualified. Um, for beginners, along with all of his other brothers, save Benjamin, uh, they had conspired against Joseph. We see his envy and hatred. He is no better than his brothers as they, they fume with hatred over their father's favoritism of Joseph. In chapter 37 and in verse 4, we read, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Later on in verse 11 of this chapter, uh, chapter 37, it says that they were jealous of him. And so as they see him coming up to them as they're pasturing the flocks in Dothan, they begin to conspire to kill him. Reuben convinces them to, to throw him in a pit. But as Reuben is away, do you know who speaks up and suggests that they sell Joseph into slavery? Look in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 37 here. Starting in verse 26, it says, Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Judah doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He doesn't want to have blood on their hands. Let, let the Ishmaelites take care of that. We'll see what becomes of him. You know, it's, it's much more profitable that we leave here with money in our pockets than blood on our hands. Let's go ahead and sell him. There's no genuine care or concern for his brother here at all, but a selfish desire to, to maybe make a profit out of this situation as well. And so Judah is an instigator in selling Joseph into slavery here, motivated again by envy and hatred, just like all of his other brothers. And beyond that, we see his dishonesty along with the other 
brothers. Um, they commit the, the worst kind of deception. They dip Joseph's coat in lamb's blood and send it to their father to convince him that his son, whom he loved above all others, had been killed by some wild beast. Notice at the end of Genesis 37, verse 34 and 35, it says, Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Do you see the hypocrisy there? Here, Joseph's brothers had, had conspired against him and sold him into slavery. They convince their father that he has been killed. And then as they see their father mourning day after day after day, they try to rise up and comfort him for the very wounds that they themselves have inflicted, for the grief that they have caused. Can you imagine what that would be like for them day after day after day, seeing their father mourn and knowing that it was their deception, their continued deception, that was causing such pain? Perhaps this is the reason that Judah decides to depart from his other brothers. In the next chapter, Genesis 38, you might think as you read through Genesis, okay, now we're going to hear the story of Joseph. That's not the case. All of a sudden in Genesis 38, we kind of divert now to talk about Judah. And what we see Judah doing is leaving his brothers. Maybe he's tired of seeing this grief of his father. He can't stomach it anymore. And so he departs from his other brothers and kind of gets swallowed up among the people of the land. We see his unholiness here. Uh, if you want to read with me in Genesis 38, starting in verse 1, it says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So he departs from his brothers, goes to the area of Adullam, to Chezeb, and intermarries with the Canaanites. This is, in fact, exactly what Isaac had been forbidden to do, what Jacob had been forbidden to do, what Esau had done that had caused his parents such grief was intermarry with the Canaanites. And that's exactly what we see Judah doing here. It's interesting as well, the way this is phrased in verse 2, it says, There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. If you read through Genesis, the pattern of seeing and taking, those two words, are often associated with sin. Back in Genesis chapter 3, what did Eve do? She saw and she took. In Genesis chapter 6, uh, when the sons of God go into the daughters of men, that same phrase is used. They saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took for them as they desired uh, wives. In fact, that's the very words that are used of Shechem when he defiles uh, their sister Dinah in chapter 34 and verse 2. Shechem saw that Dinah was beautiful and took her and lay with her. So this type of language, often at least in Genesis, indicates uh, a fleshly motive. 
Uh, and so here he is getting swallowed up among the Canaanites, departing from his brothers, intermarrying with the people of the land. And beyond that, we see his failed leadership. Notice what becomes of his sons. He has three sons here. In verse 7, it says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So, uh, Ur's wife, Tamar, now marries his other brother, Onan. But because of Onan's wickedness, notice in verse 10, it says, And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. You know, if, if your two oldest children have both been struck dead by the Lord, you might need to rethink your parenting. You might need to think about being a little bit better of a, a, a role model for your children. Obviously, here, Judah is not setting a good spiritual example if his children are both being struck dead by the Lord. And so he is concerned that Sheila, his youngest, is going to be put to death as well. And he doesn't take personal responsibility for this. He thinks, well, it's Tamar's fault. And so I'm not going to let Sheila marry this woman because, you know, something's bad about her. Maybe God will strike him dead too. And so he refuses to, to let Sheila uh, marry Tamar, says he's too young, and just kind of d dismisses Tamar. Well, it doesn't end there. We also see Judah's sexual immorality. Here, Tamar decides to take things into her own hands. She wants to have offspring Judah is refusing to give Sheila to her. And so notice, uh, in, starting in verse 13, it says, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. We'll stop there. Here, Tamar realizes that Judah's not going to give her Sheila. And so she tries to take things into her own hands. But she has to know something about Judah's character to assume that such an action is going to work. She here goes out and presents herself as a prostitute, covering her face, not showing who she actually is. And Judah takes the bait. Perhaps she knows Judah's character. Perhaps this is not the first time that he has been drawn into the sexual immorality of the Canaanites around them. But he does commit the sexual immorality with his own daughter-in-law, unbeknownst to him. And she takes his seal and cord and staff as a pledge that he will give her payment uh, this is kind of like our, our modern day driver's license and credit cards. This is identifying marks. And yet when he goes to give her payment, she's gone. Reading all of this about Judah, you might think, and wait a second, this is the person who the Messiah comes through? This is the worst kind of immorality, the worst kind of, of leadership, deception, hatred, envy. How could this be the one that's going to be praised by his brothers? How could this be the one who the scepter is not going to depart from? Well, I think we'll see that God ultimately teaches him through his failure. Remember, God is the hero of the story. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Joseph, not Judah. 
God is the hero of the story. And God teaches him through his Pharaoh. First of all, Judah gets a taste of his own medicine. Remember, Judah had taken part in deceiving his father and convincing him that his son had died. Well, what happens to Judah? His two oldest sons do die. That grief that he had seen in his father and perhaps that had, had sickened him and he didn't want to see anymore, he now experiences himself. He now knows what it's like to lose a son, in fact, to lose two sons. Not only does he get a taste of his own medicine there, but he experiences the deception of his own family. Just like they, he had taken part in deceiving his father, now his daughter-in-law deceives him into having relations with her. But I think where we ultimately see the beginnings of a turning point in Judah's life is here later on in this story here in Genesis 38. Judah has what you might call a you are the man moment, just like David, his descendant, did later on. If you want to start reading with me in verse 24, it says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she, went, uh, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Sometimes it's very easy for us to see sin in other people, right? It's very easy for us to become indignant about sin in other people. And Judah learns that his daughter-in-law has been immoral and he says, let's burn her for her sins. And then what does he realize? I'm the one. I'm the one who should be at the stake. All the more because it was my immorality that, that even caused her to do such a thing. You are the man. Judah is brought face to face with his own sin and his own unrighteousness. And perhaps for the first time, he is pierced to the heart. He is convicted by what he has done. I think this is where we're going to see a turning point in Ju Judah's life. Just like David later on, he sees that he is the man. So we begin seeing Judah now as a changed man, evidently returning to his brothers. Later on, they go down to Egypt to get grain as there is a famine. And when they go down there, Joseph sees them, knows who they are. And he decides to imprison Simeon. And send them back and say, the only way that you're going to come back down and get grain is if you bring your brother Benjamin. So they all return to their father, Jacob. But Jacob does not want to let Benjamin go. For fear that he will lose another son just as he had lost Joseph. And so in Genesis 42, Reuben, the firstborn, is the first one to speak up. In Genesis 42 and verse 37 says, then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. 
Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you shall bring down my gray hairs to, uh, with sorrow to Sheol. Reuben says, send Benjamin with me. And if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons. What, what Reuben is thinking is he's lost Joseph. Now he's lost Simeon, who's in prison in Egypt. You know, I, I'm, I'm willing to pay the same penalty, losing my two sons, if uh, I don't bring him back to you. Well, Jacob isn't interested in two dead grandchildren, right? That, that's a, a rash vow, rash promise that Reuben is making, and it's not helping his father at all. Judah, on the other hand, has lost two sons. He can't make that offer, nor would he even think of making such an offer. But in the next chapter, Judah comes to his father. Look in verse, uh, chapter 43, verse 8 and 9. Starting in verse 8, it says, And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Judah now steps up in a role of leadership and comes to his father. And here he doesn't offer his two sons, but what he offers is that if he does not bring him back, he will bear the blame, carry the guilt before his father forever. Judah knows a little bit about bearing blame. <laughs> he knows a little bit about carrying guilt. He's been carrying guilt all his life of what he had done to Joseph. But here he is determined that that's not going to happen again. And his father trusts him enough to send Benjamin in his care down to Egypt. And so as they go down to Egypt, we see that they are warmly received by Joseph, who they don't know is Joseph at this point. And yet as they go to leave the second time, Joseph puts his silver cup into the bag of Benjamin. And then he chase, has his servants chase after them and accuse them of having stolen from him. And so they come back now realizing that they are at the mercy of this man. And Joseph is going to take Benjamin, the very one that Judah had, had sworn that he would protect, and take him as his slave. Notice how they react in Genesis 44 in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, it says, Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. You notice who is taking the leadership role here. Judah and his brothers. And when they realize the situation that they are in, they don't say, oh, well, we didn't like Benjamin that much anyway. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll sell him just like we, we sold Joseph. You can take him. 
No, they all tear their clothes. They all return and fall on the ground before Joseph. And we're going to see here that Judah will speak up and give one of the longest and most impassioned speeches in the entire book of Genesis. But first, see what he says in chapter 44 and verse 16. It says, And Judah, Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. What does Judah mean here? He says, God has found out our guilt. Is he saying that, yes, Benjamin was the one who took the cup? I'm not sure if that's the guilt that he's talking about. In fact, look back earlier in chapter 42, verse 21. Chapter 42 and verse 21, as they the first time encounter difficulty with Joseph uh, down in Egypt, the brothers there in verse 21 of chapter 42 say, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They've been carrying this guilt with them all along. And when something bad happens to them in Egypt, their first thought is God is punishing us for what we did to Joseph. We saw him pleading with us as we were up here eating a meal and he was down in the pit. And we didn't have compassion on him. As Judah now here comes before Joseph and says, God has found out our guilt. I think perhaps that's the guilt that he's talking about. What they had done to their brother, Joseph. And so he acknowledges this guilt. And yet, he now demonstrates a selflessness and sacrificial love where once there had been hatred and envy. Here, they are given an opportunity to abandon Benjamin just as they had Joseph. In verse 17 of chapter 44, uh, but Joseph says to them, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. He's saying, no, you guys are off the hook. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to take him. The question is, are, are his brothers, is Judah going to abandon Benjamin just as they had Joseph to slavery? But what is Judah's Response. We won't read the entire speech here. I want to focus just on the very end of the speech. In Genesis 44, starting in verse 30, Judah says, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. you see the transformation of character here? 
Once Judah thought only about himself, only about the profit that they could get in selling Joseph into slavery, only about the envy and hatred that they had for their father's favoritism. Now, after years of carrying the guilt, of seeing the grief of their father, he's not thinking at all about himself. In fact, he says, take me in his place. I'll be a servant for the rest of my life. I'll, I'll suffer the consequences of the actions that I took against Joseph all those years ago. I will experience it. But let the boy go free. And this selfless and sacrificial love becomes a, a, a pattern or a foreshadowing of the sacrificial love that we will see in Judah's descendant, the Messiah, the Christ on our behalf, who gives himself in our place that we might go free. By God's grace, Judah's conviction over his past sins has transformed him. But there's one more step in this process. They have to go back to their father. Joseph can't contain it anymore at the beginning of Genesis 45. And he reveals who he is. And they have this, this fearful and tearful reunion with their brother. But then they go back to their father, Jacob. And the details are pretty sparse on the conversation that went on as they explained things to their father. But notice in Genesis 45, verse 25 and 26. Verse 25, it says, So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Eventually they convince him. But, you know, they couldn't just waltz in and say, by the way, Joseph is alive. We don't really know how that happened. Here they have to presumably explain what has happened. That guilt that they had been carrying with them for 20 years that they had been hiding from their father, finally has to come into the light. Not only does Judah have to confess his guilt before the Lord, he has to make things right by bringing that guilt even before his father, who he had sinned against as well. And it's not unlikely that Judah and his new leadership role among his brothers was the one to reveal those things to his father. Finally, he no longer has to silently suffer the burden of this guilt as it's brought into the light. This transformation of being a failed role model to taking a leadership role of envy and hatred to sacrificial love, of deception to conviction and confession is what makes Judah the son of promise. And so as we read Genesis 49 and we go through that list, of Reuben disqualified, Simeon and Levi disqualified, and Judah, by God's grace, by the transformation of his character, Judah receives the promise. Well, what about us? Will we learn the lessons of Judah? Will we allow God to change us? Maybe you've been a failed leader in your family. Maybe you've acted out of hatred and envy. 
Maybe you have sins of your past or present that are still dwelling in darkness, things that you have been hiding for years and years and never confessed to those whom you've wronged. By God's grace, you can change. You can receive the promise. You can be blessed through the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, the Christ. You can have your sins washed away. You can become a new man, a man after God's own heart, as is said of Judas' descendant David. If you recognize today that there's something in your life, something in your past that you haven't made right, that hasn't been brought into the light, won't you make the change? God in his grace can transform you, can make you uh, a new person. And the end of your story can be so much better than the past. But you have to be willing to come to him. You have to be willing to let him change you. If you need to confess some sin before these brethren today to ask for prayers, we want to give you that opportunity. If you've never committed your life to the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, today you can confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ. You can put that life of sin behind you, and by God's grace, you can come out of the waters of baptism, a new creation, to live a new life. If you need to do that today, if there's any way we can help you to make the necessary changes to get back where God wants you to be, let us do that. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we ask that you'll let us know by by coming forward as we stand and sing together.